Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight, our desk is graced by Laura Summers. Hey, hey. Hey, and we've got Mr. Dan Salmon. Good evening. Hello. And uh, tonight we're super excited because we are peering into the mirror of facial recognition with a couple of Aussie academics. One is a law lecturer looking at the legal implications of the proposed federal plan. The other, a communications and media studies lecturer who recently led a research survey into Australian attitudes to facial recognition technologies. Do you guys have any speculative opinions about uh, some Aussie attitudes into facial recognition? I'm very curious to see how different it might be to elsewhere in the world. That's, I think, possibly top of mind for me is, are we different? And if so, how? Mm. Mm. Well, let's hope we get some insights into that. Before we get there, in some on-theme news, Dan, what's been happening in Signal space? Ah, so Signal, our, our favourite encrypted messaging and contact uh, app, which really, if you're not on Signal, you should get on Signal, have announced that they've got a, a new tool, um, a face-blurring tool that will be incorporated into the latest Android and iOS versions of the software. Now, um, so essentially it's, uh, you know, Signal is known for, you know, it's high-security encrypted messaging services, you know, if you don't want people to know what you're saying you generally can trust signal with this um so it's it's a kind of you know a, a it's come at a good time i think in you know what's going on in the world there's a lot of a, a lot of uh you know public demonstration and a lot of perhaps police uh doing things that um probably shouldn't be doing um and that's that's uh resulted in you know a, a fair amount of uh I suppose people having their photos taken in public places, whether that's you know in protests or uh, in in other in other contexts, and you can now with uh, you know reasonably simply um, blur photos that you take in in Signal. Um, the, uh, they announced, uh, I think, yesterday or the day before, uh, the co-founder um, Moxie Marlinspike, which I have to say is the best made-up name I've ever heard, um, linked the update he, uh, directly to the worldwide protests against racism and police violence uh, sparked by the killing of George Floyd uh, last week by law enforcement officers in the US. Um, so the protests have led to record downloads for Signal, which uses, uh, yeah, so it's a pretty um, you know, solid end-to-end encryption uh, system. Another thing that Signal have announced is that... Um, They've uh, allowing you to transfer your account data from uh, old devices to new devices. So if you are a Signal user, you can now actually take your previous messaging history to a new device when when you when you, uh, when you upgrade or across grade your phone. Uh, guys, um, I, I think you know it's it's a it's a great feature. The fact that the Signal now blur, oh, you can use Signal to blur Im- images of people's uh, photo uh, faces. Um, you know, just to get that little bit of I suppose enhanced uh, security for people whose photos um, you might be inadvertently taking in these contexts. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. And a lot of people also share pictures of their kids that they don't necessarily want to um, have the identity of their children shared always. So it can be a way of managing that sort of uh, photography as well. Absolutely. Or even if you've taken a photo of someone who wants to have their face shared and then there's some people in the background you don't necessarily have permission, it's it's a much more granular way of saying, well, I can blur out some faces and leave the person I'm comfortable has given me permission. 
brainwave. What if people mm. did this before they put their profile photos on dating services? You could actually figure <laughs> out in that group of people who are the significant people. <laughs> Absolutely. So true. Although, Based on the t-shirts that they're creepy. wearing in every photo? Yeah, it is a little creepy seeing too many blurred out people in photos, especially ex-significant others in wedding photos. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awkward. So maybe, maybe use, use under advisement, you know, get, get a trusted friend to review that account. Um, I've got some news also in in theme um, from IBM just this week, a couple of days ago, IBM announced that it's canceling its facial recognition programs. Um, and it's done that to say that it feels that there's too much concern about the potential for bias and problematic um, recognitions flags being made, especially against people of color. And given, again, the background of racial inequality and systemic inequality in the States, they felt that it, they just didn't have confidence in selling that service anymore. And they have called more broadly for other technology companies to ask the question whether or not it's okay and safe to be selling these kinds of services, um, which I'm, I'm very excited to see. Like it's, it's quite a big move from a company that you might potentially consider to be more bottom line driven than necessarily purpose driven. So this is this is definitely promising. It, it, yeah, Laura, wasn't it fascinating? This seems to be like the biggest company political decision that we've had since uh, companies started pulling out of those big defense contracts uh, using artificial intelligence and machine learning on weapons for the defense. Yeah, so yes, it's, precisely. It's it is. Um, and I'd like to shout out that there's two researchers whose work is very much um, the driver behind this increasing awareness of the problematic nature of facial recognition, and that's Joy Bolawami and Timit Gabru, and their work is available at gendershades.org, and it's fascinating. If you're at all interested in the state of the art with machine learning and facial recognition, this is a very interesting place for you to go and see like what's happening, why it's problematic, and get a better sense of what's going on there. Yeah, I think so many people are aware of the story where um, you had soap dispensers that worked with Caucasian skin, but didn't necessarily work with you know any shades uh darker than that and mm. now that we're moving into a facial recognition area where you know the difference is so much um more complex than just shades of skin color uh the potential for harm and unintended consequences is so huge so um, absolutely yeah, really especially when it's being, being sold as a police like um you know, a policing tool. And particularly when you see police doing things like rocking up to protesters' houses days after a protest, um, if you've been incorrectly identified or if, I mean, obviously, like, police shouldn't be brutalizing um, activists regardless. But but yes, it's certainly like seeing some of the ways that police are very blatantly misusing their powers. I think we need to be very, very careful in like expanding the scope of their surveillance capabilities, especially when it comes to the, the ways that people of color are much more frequently misidentified um, and the harms that can happen to them if they are like actually identified as someone who might be um, a criminal or have been flagged on a police database in the past. Hey, we cannot um, have a show go by without talking about public health trends, COVID-19 trends. Um, but something that happened related to tech was that Tesla, which is um, has some of its uh, warehouses based in California, uh, defied local county orders um, to, to distance their workers and everything so that they could restart their production line. 
um, of their Tesla vehicles. Days later, some of their workers tested positive for the coronavirus. And uh, yeah, it's, so it's in Fremont, California that this has happened. Now we've, we've looked at uh, the, the current COVID-19 trends in the US. While they're broadly trending downwards, they are still identifying about 25,000 uh, 25, cases a day in the US. And it breaks down very differently state by state. So California is actually still on the rise um, because they, they sort of stopped their strict um, social distancing guidelines a little while ago. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of concerning to see that. And um, yeah, companies like Tesla, which can be clever in some ways, are not immune. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, um, I, I, I will go to the wall saying how much I don't like Elon Musk. Um, I, I think it's sad that his employees are the ones who are suffering for his poor decisions um, or maybe his business's poor decisions. But, I mean, he's been, he's been vocal in his opposition to lockdowns and to all the rest. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just sad that his employees are the ones who are copying the brunt and he will probably see uh, no personal negative consequences from it. Hmm. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You have bite into it with Laura, Dan, and Vanessa. Thanks for joining us. Um, Dr. Sarah Moulds is a senior lecturer in law at the University of South Australia and co-founder of the Rights Resource Network South Australia. With teaching and research interests, including the areas of public law, human rights, counter-terrorism and criminal law, and anti-discrimination law, tonight she joins us to discuss the proposed national facial recognition system, which the federal government plans to share across states and territories. Welcome, Dr. Sarah Moulds. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, if you don't mind, we'll call you Sarah from here on out. We're pretty informal. Um, and we would love to get a bit of background on this issue. Uh, the now Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, prior to the 2019 election, had been shopping around the prospect of a facial recognition scheme, allowing government agencies, banks and telecommunications companies to collect and share photos of people across Australia. Um, that's obviously prior to, to getting elected and um, potentially feeling like he has a mandate for this. What can you tell us about the proposed identity matching services bill that would enable some of this sharing and collecting of facial recognition data? Yeah, thanks. So it's quite a complex law because what it does is um, aim to create a hub that would be managed by the Federal Home Affairs um, Department. And so it would allow um, a mechanism for different um, agencies, either at the state and federal level or, as you said, some private organisations and some local governments to be able to make requests um, or authorise the sharing and exchange of different facial recognition uh, data amongst themselves. So it doesn't actually grant new powers to collect facial recognition images, but it does set up a process for, say, a local government in South Australia to be able to make a request to Customs or DFAT or Home Affairs to access some of their information um, 
for different purposes that they're allowed to uh, collect and share that material. And Sarah, what have they, um, how have they articulated the proposed benefits of this sort of sharing and um, collation of data? Yeah, so uh, there are a range of benefits in being able to confirm someone's identity with accuracy. So we all can think of these examples. Uh, we have often experienced this ourselves when we've applied for a passport or we're walked through an airport where we're looking to confirm that we're who we say we are on our travel documents. So there is a lot of benefit in having an accurate, fast way to do this for identity verification. And it can also be used to help us find people who might be missing or might be facing some kind of situation of danger. They might be in a bushfire or they might be a missing person, for example. We could potentially use the sharing of this information to help um, locate people or confirm people's identity. So that's some of the benefits of using this technology. Um, but uh, there are also a range of questions or concerns that come up when we talk about sharing or using or storing this kind of sensitive information. Mm. And uh, it's certainly, even the proposed uh, legislation has been criticised heavily by human rights organisations. Um, from your legal perspective, can you, can you tell us some of the, the arguments that, that people put forward about the risks of, of putting something like this into place? Yeah, so... One of the big uh, issues for those organisations, and actually this issue was shared by the government-dominated committee that looked into this um, proposal at the, in, uh, when it went through the federal parliament last year, and that concern was around safeguards and oversight. So um, many people agree that it's useful to be able to explore facial recognition technology if the sharing and storage of that information is tightly controlled. But this proposal lacked some of the features um, that people were looking for to guard against overuse, misuse or technical um, problems and also security breaches. So what we saw was a range of different laws and privacy protections at the state level. So in Victoria, there's human rights legislation, the privacy protections are really strong. In South Australia, where I'm from, we don't have the same um, legislation. We don't have a Human Rights Act and we don't have the same privacy protections. So the idea of us sharing information among those different governments gives rise to questions around safeguards um, for privacy. When we add the federal government into the mix, um, there's another um, range of questions about to what extent um, are the safeguards and protections in one agency um, applicable to another agency. Agency. So would law enforcement or intelligent organisations be able to share this information um, or would they be subject to different limits? So lots of questions about the detail. Another concern was that the um, ministers involved would be given a lot of discretion to work out these details through agreement, um, through the COAG group, which is now no longer in existence, so through some kind of mechanism of agreement between governments, um, or by regulation, which is rulemaking but doesn't need to go through Parliament. So there were questions about um, the detail and then there was the question about who would be looking out to check that the promises that were made were being delivered when it comes to privacy, but also to check that the technology was accurate. 
Um, so in the UK, where there's a similar model um, of facial recognition technologies being used and shared among agencies, there is an independent oversight body that has that function of investigating and reporting on compliance and ensuring that um, the agencies that are using or sharing this information are subject to those strict safeguards. Mm. With the, the state of the art of machine learning facial recognition changing so frequently, it seems possibly a bit concerning or dubious to think that we would even have technologists in the government with sufficient expertise to properly assess these like these qual these um, labels, these classifications coming out of the system, let alone being able to sort of keep track of it over time and, and give us a, a broad sense of the accuracy over time. Um, we were talking just before about gender shades and this issue with people of color and particularly women who are people of color being misclassified at much higher rates than other people. Um, has that also been something that's been raised as a concern about the accuracy being lumpy across some demographics and possibly like the, the impact to people who are already vulnerable? Yes, so that has there has been a number of academic studies that suggest that there um Many of the technologies that are being reply, relied upon, sorry, by state agencies, and I think one study focused on the um, use of facial recognition technology in the UK, and that study found that there was um, less accuracy across some different ethnicities and some cultural features. So that um, can lead to more false negatives or more false positives um, when that technology is applied to people of colour, for example. That was one study that revealed those problems. But as you said, the technology is changing. One of the enduring issues or questions is around the quality of the images and also the question of consent. So at the moment when you have your passport taken, um, you're getting a high-quality image of your face and you're doing that um, in a consent-based environment. And then when you walk through the um, uh, airport scanner, again, you're getting a high-quality image and there's a level of consent there. Now, we might argue, well, you know, consent isn't that um, realistic in that situation because you have to go through the system if you want to travel, but at least you're aware of what's happening with your image. And the quality of both those images on your passport and at the airport is quite high in that controlled environment. So if we are optimistic and think that the government adopts the best technology, perhaps we can have confidence that in that environment the match is quite um, detailed and therefore the quality is quite good. But when we start to think about the use of this technology in other contexts, where either consent is lacking or the image itself is not high quality, then there are really serious questions around false positives and false negatives. So when one of the images might be from a crowd um, taken from CCTV or um, from a road-based camera, um, and then you're matching that up against another image in a database. That is when there's some really serious questions around the quality of the match. And then I guess other questions about how that information is then shared and relied upon. So as a lawyer, I'm particularly thinking about the potential for that kind of information to be relied upon to prove um, the guilt of um, somebody for a criminal charge, for example. In that environment, um, that would be um, problematic if you couldn't be assured of the quality of that match. Mm. Um, so you mentioned that 
this isn't necessarily increasing the capture of images, but more increasing the collaboration between people who have existing databases. Um, I'm just curious if you can name for us some of the people who are already capturing our faces. Like you mentioned already, faces from passports. And I've heard that there's a facial, rec uh, facial database that's being captured off of our driver's licenses. Are there other organizations or, or government groups that are like capturing our faces for different purposes? Yeah, so um, there are actually some interesting examples. I'm just looking at some legislation at the moment in South Australia that relates to the use of facial recognition technology um, to combat problem gambling. So using this in um, areas where there might be poker machines at the pub. And so this is a really interesting example. On the one hand, everyone agrees that it's good to be able to stop problem gambling. So maybe having a fast way of saying, yep, you're someone who's... Uh, uh, been recognised as having a gambling problem, you shouldn't be able to use the pokey machine. Um, but it does raise some serious questions. Are we comfortable with a pub having um, this facial recognition technology being used in one of their gaming rooms to identify people as they walk in? What is the quality of the technology they're using? And then what happens to that information? Um, how can we be confident about what it's being used for and who it's being shared with. They're some of the key questions that come up when we start to think about the use of this technology in other places. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there are many government agencies that are using a combination of ways to verify identity and experimenting with this kind of technology as one of those ways to verify identity. Um, but more and more we're seeing... Uh, local governments and state governments experiment with using this type of thing in different areas. Sarah, we saw the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security hand down an extensive report calling for significant changes to the legislation uh, with a focus on privacy protections and other safeguards against misuse, um, which, you know, presumably the security of where the, where the data is being hosted as a whole. Um, have we heard any murmurings about improvements given that feedback? Uh, are any of the recommendations being taken on board? Is there any transparency on that process? Well, I think um, it really comes down to differences between the jurisdictions. So in the ACT and Victoria, where there's really robust privacy oversight regimes and, as I said, human rights legislation, um, they're kind of setting the highest standard when it comes to the type of privacy impact assessments that would be required to satisfy um, decision makers that were involved in that committee that... Um, both the accuracy of the technology is confirmed, but also the limits on sharing and usage and destruction are in place in the legislation itself. When you step out, though, to the other jurisdictions that don't have those regimes in place, um, then I'm not necessarily seeing an appetite to implement stronger privacy reforms in those places. So what will then be the question is... Um, when another committee looks at this again, if the federal government decides to have another go at this regime, will they raise the privacy protections up to that higher bar, the type of thing that we see in ACT in Victoria or perhaps the model in the UK, or will they try and go for something a bit less... Um, it may also depend on the relationship between the states because unless they get agreement across the different jurisdictions, then the idea of the hub kind of doesn't work. 
So that will be interesting, the dynamic across um, the different governments. But as we've seen with things like the COVID Safe app, um, there is an interest in um, governments being, uh, being given a licence to explore with some of these technologies. So maybe um, if the government put this up again, they might have more success. It's difficult to tell in this current environment how much um, latitude would be given to the government in pursuing these type of things. I was just going to ask one last quick question was, do you think that a company like IBM abandoning their facial recognition programs and saying that they're really not confident in the quality and the accuracy of the tech, do you think that has the potential to maybe change the mind of the government that this is not such a good idea after all? Yeah, I think so. Um, that that is that would. I mean, I think there's people on that uh, intelligence and security committee committee that are very influential both within the government and the opposition, and also have demonstrated strong interest in this area and are genuine about um, ensuring that the safeguards are there. So, if there is a really big question about the technology, I think that will have a bearing on whether or not they're prepared to support. Um, a second go at this legislation. I also think um, if there's an alternative model that would allow um, identity verification um, to occur quickly and efficiently across government, that that would also be um, very useful and something of interest to the people in that committee. Um, so I guess there's general support around the idea of making an easier, more efficient way to verify our identity. Um, but the question is, can we rely upon the technology at the moment? And if there's risks, then what do we do to address those risks? And in my view, um, at the very least, the UK model that has a really strong independent oversight um, is, is the best way to minimise those risks while we wait for the technology to improve. But if we think back to, say, the use of DNA technology, um, we may well be on a similar journey here. When that type of um, technology was first introduced as a way to confirm people's identity, Initially, it was assumed that it was completely fail-safe, um, that it would be 100% accurate all the time. But as we've been able to investigate the use of that um, technology, we've been able to understand that it's not always perfect. And just like facial recognition, it depends on the quality of the two samples that you're matching. And there's multiple points of matching. So the more detailed your analysis, the greater quality your result will be. Um, that DNA experience also showed us that if there is a problem in the chain of evidence, something that went wrong in the way that you collected the sample, that that can jeopardise um, the match or that can raise questions about how it's used. So I think a lot of that learning applies here. Um, if we're doing facial recognition with full informed consent of people, then that might be an area to start. But if we're going to allow this information to be shared and used for a range of purposes that could have a really serious impact on people's lives, then I think we need to improve the safeguards a lot more than we have now. We've been speaking with Dr. Sarah Moulds, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of South Australia and co-founder of the Rights Resource Network South Australia. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. I think we've learned a fair bit. My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Great to speak with you. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. So lovely to hear Mel Cranenberg's voice uh, just dropping over from backstory to uh, to join us and our you know fellow Wednesday broadcasting neighbours. So this evening we have had a focus on facial recognition technology and that continues with this conversation. Monash University has conducted a nationwide survey, the first of its kind, examining how Australians feel about facial recognition technology. Lead researcher Dr Robbie Fordyce is a lecturer and um, he's in the communications and media studies area at Monash University. His research interests include digital ethics, smart cities, infrastructure, automation, surveillance and fabrication. So it makes a lot of sense that he was lead researcher on this nationwide survey. Welcome, Dr Robbie. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I hope you don't mind if we call you Robbie going forward. Uh, We're pretty relaxed around here. So the first thing that we wanted to find out about the nationwide survey you conducted is just what was the scope and and scale of your survey? So we tried to do a representative sample of um, the entirety of Australia, um, trying to include people from, you know, from urban centres through to regional and rural uh, areas in a sort of uh, proportionate population. Um, we had about, uh, I think it was 2,300 responses to our survey. Um, and yeah, uh, I think um, I can't tell you the number of questions off the top of my head, but I'd have to thank everyone for their uh, endurance for going through <laughs> the survey. That's a good sign that it's relatively hefty. Uh, so I guess what was what was the um, motivation to poll Australians about facial recognition technology? Well, um, firstly, I'd like to just start by by saying that um, I, I can't claim the title of lead researcher. Uh, oh, my myself. apologies. It's a it's a collaborative project going on here. Um, but uh, yeah, the the team. Um, recognised that there wasn't really much in terms of a nationwide sort of understanding of how people are responding to facial recognition. But we're also noticing that, you know, there's been this increase in implementation or rollout of facial recognition by all sorts of different um, groups and and, um, state services. And we sort of, you know, like you may have seen the the calls for legislation from the Australian Human Rights um, Commission, for instance. And there's just not not really like a good sort of uh, core understanding of what's really going on. And we actually saw that coming through on our survey as well, actually. So I guess we were just trying to work out what do people think? And it, it turns out uh, it's it's a conflicted space. So, yeah. I've certainly noticed people seem to be very accepting of that kind of facial recognition at the airport, as we were just talking about earlier. Um, but I suppose uh, like maybe an intuition is that the more people worry about their safety, the more permissive they might be to this kind of technology being implemented. Yeah. So I guess um, what we saw is actually people are probably a bit more willing to accept facial recognition in places that they consider to be high risk. So, you know, situations like um, around schools, if it's the safety of, of children in particular, or at border sort of environments, I think, um people do have a concern around um, safety in those spaces and they're actually prepared to sacrifice quite a lot in order to maintain that safety. Um, 
But I think people are much less willing to accept it in the more sort of conventional spaces. Based on what we were seeing in our survey, people actually, you know, they see it as a tool that solves a certain kind of problem, but they don't really want to, to be subject to, the, to it themselves. So people want it at the border, at the school, but not really in their own, you know, on their street or in the, the shops that they go to or at their workplace, for instance. So we were trying to ask people, you know, w would you be um, would you be okay with people using facial recognition to sort of test people's moods in the mall? So as they move around the mall, if they're happy in one place or you know more resistant to shopping in another, would they be okay with that? And generally, people aren't. Like people don't really want to be tracked. They just want to use it when it's a, a situation where everything is is high risk. Um, I think also what we were kind of seeing is that people don't really understand. Uh, like, they don't understand the technology um, super well. People often sort of think, you know, whether they agree or they disagree, the two sort of common reference points that people are going to are things like their, their mobile phone, so using the facial recognition uh, service in their mobile phone, or fiction. So we don't have a good education on, on facial recognition, so people are going to things like 1984, Minority Report, all that sort of stuff to try and understand. <laughs> That's an incredible insight to have generated. So, so did this, presumably your survey closed before our COVID-19 shutdown and and the tracing app discussions, is, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. But it yes. sounds like your, your insights um, were borne out with maybe the public discussion around tracing apps. Could you tell us a bit about how it's played out compared to what your results showed you? Yeah, look, I, I guess with the COVID tracing stuff, like, you know, um, I think I think it ties into the whole surveillance situation that, you know, we recognize that, that society is a big and complex place, right? We don't, you know, our own personal perspective on what's going out in the going on out in the city, uh, going out on in other people's homes or what kind of encounters um, the people that we met have maybe had with people or perhaps, in, you know, maybe they're infected with a disease. Like, we can't really understand that on an individual level. We have to use sort of all sorts of generalities. But surveillance sort of, to some people, it presents itself as a solution to this knowledge problem that maybe we'll be able to understand what's going on if we, if we just track enough stuff. But I think, um, you know, there are some problems with, um, I think, with the uh, COVID tracking stuff that, you know, people have, have um, already... Uh, found, uh, sorry, reported on in the media, for instance, uh, the issues that people in medical professions have had getting access to the data, the fact that there's some, you know, serious security and auditing problems going on with, with the tracking. Um, and I guess to be more specific about your question, people have also been talking about um, using various kinds of facial recognition to make, you know, um, to to track heat signatures in people to try and tell if people are, are ill from infrared cameras, for instance. But, you know, this creates all sorts of complications with regards to, you know, health data or making a medical decision with a piece of technology that's sort of, you know, not necessarily well audited. Uh, and, yeah, the connections are there, but like everything with facial recognition, it's poorly understood and it's not well regulated. So, yeah. Um, I'm curious if you asked questions specifically about the rollout of facial recognition on iPhones, because that's sort of, I know that we're an iPhone heavy country and my understanding is the adoption of the like um, face ID stuff has been pretty high in Australia. So I'm just curious if you dug into that topic. No, we didn't, we didn't specifically ask about personal devices. We were much more mm -hmm. interested in, you know, uh, 
institutions like schools, workplaces, and uh, various state services there. That's fair. Robbie, and, you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Vanessa. Go for it, Dan. Oh, um, you, you, meant, you mentioned, you know, people have, you know, the, I suppose they're accepting of it in certain contexts and not in others. Mm-hmm. What Did anyone, or did you, did you ask the question around where people were perhaps concerned about the overuse or perhaps the, the creep of using facial technician or facial recognition in those applications which were, they were less comfortable? No. Um, surveys aren't, like the the length of survey that we were asking here probably wouldn't have benefited from more questions. I think we we were probably pushing it with the questions that we had. But um, generally speaking, uh, people are fairly hardline about where they sort of want it to be used or not used. And you know, we did see a few sort of situations where people were a bit more accepting or a bit less accepting based on what kind of um, context we were able to dream up. We w- we weren't trying to keep everything like um, very. Um, you know, dystopian. We were trying to think up, like, you know, what we might, uh, what we call pro-social uses of uh, facial recognition. So one of the things that we were thinking about was, you know, uh, facial recognition for managing weapons purchases, facial recognition for um, uh, identifying um, domestic violence abusers on online dating platforms and trying to come up with things that, like, well, you know, if we were going to have it, maybe these are things that we'd actually, like, accept it being used for. So, you know, which wasn't – we can't really detect the the scope creep, as it were, but we can see that people are maybe a bit more accepting of it in in some situations. Um, I think, generally speaking, though, it's it's around security that people want it, um, whereas – I think when it's um, for things like commercial benefit, people are actually pretty turned off it. Robbie, um, people like uh, former Human Rights Commissioner uh, Professor Gillian Triggs have spoken about the potential chilling effect on freedoms and, and actions just in the general population that surveillance can have. And I wonder if any of your questions, you know, led to some insights on that aspect of facial recognition being used. It's, it's hard to say. Like, we, we still have a, a large amount of qualitative data that we're still working through. So we've mainly just processed the um, the quantitative Likert scale information there. But, I mean, people people are concerned. In, in the qualitative data, we can see that people have real concerns about, like, what it might do for them personally. People who, you know, um, answers from people who are co- concerned about being overly discriminated uh, by facial recognition, for one thing people who worry about misidentification, people who worry about inaccuracy. And I think um, in terms of that sort of stuff, like we're still going through it and we probably won't have any like neat percentage numbers to say this many people are concerned about this or that. But, you know, we, we are seeing people that are actually worried that it will affect their lives in very, you know, dramatic ways. And while chilling effects is kind of part of that, I think people are actually much more concerned about getting picked up, uh, you know, for... Uh, perceived crimes or, you know, loitering or other sorts of non-specific um, you know, kinds of uh, concerns there, yeah. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how the data that you've collected might be used. Like, do you do you hope to influence government policy in future or are there other applications you think that might be helpful for technologists or government agencies um, thinking about whether or not to use this kind of tech in the future? Uh, good question. Look, for, for starters, um, in terms of my uh, personal opinion, 
Um, I, I don't see a good justification for facial recognition technology really anywhere. Um, I, don't, I don't think that we currently have problems that are solved by, uh, that could only be solved by facial recognition, that couldn't be solved by another solution that has a greater sort of respect for, you know, civil, civil rights of individuals, basically. But in terms of um, the more specific questions about where we're going with this, um, we're looking to, uh, well, we're going to be um, submitting some responses to um, a couple of calls for submissions from the AHRC. We've already submitted something um, to uh, a piece on the use of automated intelligence in various sorts of policing or data gathering kind of contexts. And, you know, there is an increased um, recognition at the moment, I think, since the Cambridge Analytica sort of moment, that there does need to be sort of more, you know, uh, into uh, like intervention by the public generally in, in these large platforms like Facebook, uh, Twitter, and, you know, the companies that are rolling out facial recognition in Australia. Yeah. Did you um, happen to name any of those companies, uh, you know, your Facebooks and what have you, your Clearview AI, you know, noted Australian founder of that in the survey? Uh, not in the survey. We were trying to keep specific companies away from any generalities we didn't really want to um overly influence the results of the of the survey as we went but i mean it's it's difficult to keep track of that stuff because as it stands there isn't effective regulation that makes it you know something that needs to be effectively reported on or accounted for or even like well managed from what i can tell so yeah yeah, it's been uh, so educational chatting with you th this evening, Robbie. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We've been speaking with Dr. Robbie Fordyce. He's a lecturer in communications and media studies at Monash University. Um, well worth looking him up for uh, further insights into their survey data as you keep getting into the qualitative stuff there. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Triple R. Triple R, 7.54, bite into it for the last little bit with Dan, Laura and Vanessa. Uh, we have a little good news of the week this week, um, and that is that one of Reddit's board's uh, members is stepping down to make space for a person of colour. It is one of their co-founders, um, and I loved that the way I heard this news was there was an article that said there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who know... Alexis Ohanian as Serena Williams' husband and those who know him as one of Reddit's three co-founders. I thought that was hilarious. Um, sport's not hugely my thing. It took until I saw this article for me to put the pieces together. Uh, I knew Serena Williams had a, had, a, had a husband and that's about it, but there you go. Um, so Mr. Serena Williams has stepped down from Reddit's board and he asked that a black executive take his place. Uh, Reddit's current CEO, Steve Huffman, agreed to the plan and said that, look, this decision's a big step in Instead of just talking about diversifying the company's all-white board, they're actually doing it. Um, I actually have an update for that, um, Vanessa. I actually, as of maybe an hour ago, Reddit has announced that it's going to be Michael Seibel, who is the Y Combinator co-founder and wow. has been an advisor at Y Combinator since 2013, advised hundreds of startups, and has been very active in promoting diversity efforts amongst startup founders. So that's very exciting news. Fantastic. Um, so as well as that, Ohanian has committed all of his future Reddit stock gains, which could be around $50 million mark US, according to TechCrunch, to serve the black community. His first step 
has been a $1 million donation to Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camp. So they're really putting some bucks and some action behind uh, their good intentions, and that's really great to see. Mm. Definitely, especially considering how much Reddit has uh, destroyed society in other ways. It's nice to see. Oh, that they're their back. new HN. Come on, <laughs> this is. <true. laughs> um, Laura- there's also, yeah, a couple of events coming up right now. There's a free play which is on, and um, that's from June 10th to 14th. It's a five-day digital festival filled with online talks, panels, workshops, and more. And I believe one of our excellent panelists is on it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So at 6.30 this evening, while we're warming up for this show, one of our co-hosts, Paul Callahan, who happens to be an ex-festival director of the Free Play Independent Game Festival, was on a panel there with a few other ex-festival directors um, sharing their insights about how far the festival's come over 15 years. So that's incredible to think it's been so long. It... uh, because they've flipped to a virtual model this year, everything's free. You've got incredible access to talent, both uh, local indie game development talent and uh, international. So well worth dipping in and out of that festival over the next few days. Um, and one more I would like to spoik. Um, totally shameless self-promotion, I will not lie. Um, there's an event called the Responsible Tech Summit, which is being run by Agile Australia um, next week, Monday the 15th to Friday the 19th of June. That's online at responsibletechsummit.com.au. And aside from me, there are a number of really excellent speakers, um, academics, as well as people in the industry, and it's all free. It's going from nine to one every day. Um, so you can dip in and out and see if there's any talks that you're interested in. So I highly recommend checking that out and seeing if there's anything you're into. Yeah, anyone who's into the sort of topics we've been covering tonight would well worth uh, checking out that because, you know, issues like facial recognition, accessibility, um, yeah, equity of access, diversity, those sort of things and how they intersect with the sorts of technologies that we're working on at the cutting edge these days, uh, all the sorts of things in conversation at the Responsible Tech Summit. Uh, Laura, what are you speaking about specifically? I will be speaking about the different kinds of bias that can be introduced in a machine learning um, system and the ways that we might think about mitigating against those forms of bias. So basically a breakdown on bias. That's great to hear because too often we we call out the problematic aspects of the tech in, in our show and really don't offer any of the solutions that might be there. So I'm glad to hear you're, uh, you're providing some of that. Hey, something that's coming up a little bit later, but that people should keep their eyes on because tickets are cheaper before June 30 is the uh, Code Remote program. So it's a conference focused on core front-end technologies and practices, you know, web, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, security and performance. Um, it's under $200 if you go in before June 30, and it's it's one of those real professional development type of, type of um, events. So that's worth looking out for in August. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening for helping us do a bit of a deep dive into facial recognition, both the state of the proposed laws, um, some of the the problems that people want to solve, um, the varying state protections that we might already have in the law, but then also um, the insights into some of our attitudes um, and our probably pretty limited awareness across the population and communities about what these technologies might entail and what they the implications might mean for us going forward. So thanks to our guests, Dr. Sarah Moulds from University of South Australia and Dr. Robbie Fordyce from 
Monash University. It's been very educational. I hope it has been for you as well. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been Bite Into It and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Have a good week. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.